Well, it is a joy to be with you, the people of God, this morning to open God's word together. We'll be in 2 Samuel chapter 1, picking up our uh, study through the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We took a break over the summer to look at the Beatitudes, but we are going to be picking up the action again in 2 Samuel chapter 1. Well, it is often said that character is king. Character is king. And by this, we mean that someone's character is the most important thing about them. They can have all the talent in the world, but if they aren't a man or woman of character, it's not going to go well. And this is because someone's character drives who they are and what they do. And this is why character is especially important for leaders. I think we all long for leaders of good character, leaders who can be trusted to respond well and faithfully to the difficulties, to the successes, and to the temptations of life. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, God's people, the nation of Israel, are in the midst of a major leadership transition. Their first king, Saul, has just died, and David, the man God had chosen to succeed Saul, is about to become king. And in this opening chapter, we see David's character on display as he responds to the news of Saul's death. So as we look at God's word to us this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 1, I want us to focus on what does this text reveal about the character of God's anointed king? And of course, as we look at David, we will be repeatedly called to look beyond David to David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and see in him the true king our hearts need, the true king our hearts long for. But before we get into our story this morning, let me just quickly review what's led up to this moment in David's life. So for those of you who were with us at the beginning of this year, we made our way through the exciting book of 1 Samuel. We were introduced to two main characters, Saul and David. Saul was Israel's first king, but because he had failed to listen to and obey the voice of his God, God had rejected him as king. David, on the other hand, was a man after God's own heart, whom God chose to be the next king of Israel after Saul. And as you may recall, Saul and David's relationship started out pretty well. David fought Goliath and won a huge victory for the nation of Israel. But it didn't take long for Saul to become jealous of David and want to kill him. And so the latter half of 1 Samuel is dominated by the conflict between Saul and David. Saul relentlessly pursues David, seeking to kill him. And yet David, even when given the opportunity, refuses to kill Saul out of his high regard for Saul's position as the Lord's anointed king. Instead, David chose to patiently endure suffering, waiting for God to remove Saul and give him the kingdom in his perfect time. And this is what we see happening and climaxing in the final chapters of 1 Samuel. So as 1 Samuel comes to a close, we are seeing a lot happen in both Saul and David's life. For Saul, he is facing the terrifying reality of God's rejection and judgment on him for his disobedience to God's word. So as Israel's enemies, the Philistines, are gathering a massive force for battle, Saul inquires of the Lord and he's met 
with heaven's deafening silence. Overwhelmed by fear then, Saul sinfully consults a medium to bring up the prophet Samuel from the dead in a desperate attempt to figure out what to do. But Samuel only tells Saul that God has rejected him and that he and his sons will die in battle against the Philistines the very next day. And that's exactly what happened. The next day when the Philistines attack, they completely rout Israel and 1 Samuel 31 tells the sad story of Saul's end. He's injured, the Philistines are pressing in around him and so he falls on his own sword to escape the torture and humiliation that would come from being captured by his enemies. Well, it's a tragic end to a tragic life. And while all this is happening, David is also going through some difficult circumstances. When he and his men were away, this band of raiding Amalekites had taken all of their wives and all of their children and burned their houses. And in 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, we read, David was in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him, for they were all very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So whereas God had rejected Saul, God was with David. And after seeking the Lord's guidance and receiving that, David and his men head out after the Amalekites and God provides a huge victory for them and they're able to rescue all of their wives and children and everything that had been taken from them. So this is how 1 Samuel ends and it's into this that 2 Samuel begins. So let's pick up the story in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed at Ziklag two days. So what's important for us to remember is that David doesn't yet know that Saul is dead. All he knows is that the Israelites and the Philistines were preparing for this huge battle, but he has no idea how the battle has gone. So as David and his men are trying to put their lives back together again in Ziklag, they are anxiously awaiting news about how things have gone between the Israelites and the Philistines. And eventually the waiting is over. Verse 2. On the third day, a man with torn clothes and dust on his head came from Saul's camp. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David asked him, where have you come from? He replied to him, I've escaped from the Israelite camp. What was the outcome? Tell me, David asked him. The troops fled from the battle, he answered. Many of the troops have fallen and are dead. Also Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Well, this is huge news. And so David wants to verify that what he is hearing is actually the truth. So look at verse five. David asked the young man who had brought him the report, how do you know, how do you know Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? Well, I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, he replied, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. At that very moment, the chariots and the cavalry were closing in on him. When he turned around and saw me, he called out to me. So I answered, I'm at your service. He asked me, who are you? I told him, I'm an Amalekite. Then he begged me, stand over me and kill me, for I'm mortally wounded, but my life still lingers. So I stood over him 
and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he couldn't survive. I took the crown that was on his head and the armband that was on his arm and I've brought them here to my Lord. Well, let's pause and just process all that we've just heard. For those of us familiar with the story of Saul's death from 1 Samuel 31, something seems a little off here. In 1 Samuel 31, the narrator told us plainly that Saul had fallen on his own sword and killed himself. Not that an Amalekite had killed him. So what is this Amalekite doing by spinning the story this way? Why is he claiming to have been the one to take Saul's life? Well, let's notice the Amalekite's actions. In verse 2, we are told that when he arrived, he fell to the ground before David and paid homage. And then in verse 10, we see that he not only claimed to have killed Saul, he also took Saul's crown and his armband and brought them to David, who he calls his Lord. So I don't think it takes much for us to figure out what's going on here, right? This Amalekite is no dummy. He knows that the political winds are changing. It was no secret that David was the Lord's anointed king, the one chosen by God to succeed Saul. And it was also no secret how relentless and ruthless Saul had been in trying to kill David. And so this Amalekite saw an opportunity and he pounced on it. He thought he would win David's favor by being the one who killed Saul and brought him the crown. And so he embellishes the truth to make himself look better. Instead of just reporting that Saul had died, he claimed to have been the one to kill Saul himself. After all, what better way to ingratiate yourself to the new king than to be the one who took out his competition? So this Amalekite is driven by self-interest. In reporting this story to David, he was hoping to gain something from David, maybe a position in his new government or some other reward. Regardless of what exactly it may have been after, it is clear that he was hoping to benefit from his lies. So let's think about this for our own lives. Where do we have some of this Amalekite opportunism lurking inside of us? Where in your life are you tempted to embellish the truth a little for your own advantage? Where in your life do you allow the ends to justify the means? This Amalekite wanted a good thing, right? He wanted David to be king, but it didn't stop there for the Amalekite. He wanted David to be king because of what it would do for him. He really didn't desire David's kingdom to come. He desired his own kingdom to come, his own will to be done. He was driven by self-interest and self-promotion. And so he was hoping to use David to get what he wanted. Sadly, I think this Amalekite opportunism is a temptation we still face today in Christ's church. It is so easy for us to blend a desire for Christ's kingdom with our own advancement. Though our lips say our ministry is about Christ, our hearts are driven by what's in it for us, whether that's recognition from others 
or whether that's building and maintaining our power and our influence. And so we become territorial, we become easily hurt or threatened by others, and these are all signs that our ministry has now become about us and our agenda and not about Christ and his agenda. And what makes this so dangerous is that when we are driven by self-interest, we are willing to make compromises to secure and protect our precious little kingdoms. Things that should be black and white all of a sudden begin to look a little gray. We're quick to justify certain actions or behaviors saying it was necessary for the sake of the ministry. People we are called to love and serve become objects that we use to get what we want. And the sad reality is, is that when the bottom line is your self-interest, you will do whatever it takes to protect that. And unfortunately, the history of the church has proven this time and time again. I'm sure all of us can easily think of people or famous ministry leaders who have, under the guise of serving Jesus Christ, grossly abused their power and position to their own advantage. Instead of serving Christ for Christ's sake, they have served Christ because of what was in it for them, what they could get out of it. And the results have been disastrous. Christ's precious people have been hurt and disillusioned by these Amalekite-hearted leaders. Their greedy self-interest has left a trail of broken lives behind them. But thankfully, our God is not mocked. Though they may be able to fool some people, our God is not fooled. God sees their self-seeking hearts and he will judge them for that. In the end, wickedness will not prosper in the kingdom of God's anointed king. In the end, wickedness will not prosper in the kingdom of God's anointed king. Look at David's response to the Amalekite story in verse 11. Then David took hold of his clothes and he tore them. And all the men with him did the same. They mourned, wept, and fasted until the evening for those who died by the sword, for Saul, his son Jonathan, the Lord's people, and the house of Israel. Do you think this was the response the Amalekite was expecting? Was this the response you were expecting from David? After all, Saul had made David's life miserable for close to 10 years or more. And now that Saul is out of the way, David's path to the kingship is wide open. And yet notice David's character. Instead of celebrating, David is grieving. He's weeping. He's lamenting. But look at verse 13. David continues questioning the Amalekite. David inquired of the young man who had brought him the report, where are you from? Well, I'm the son of a resident alien, he said. I'm an Amalekite. 
So a resident alien was a non-Israelite who lived in Israel and enjoyed certain rights and privileges, but was also subject to the law of the land. So in other words, this guy is someone who was familiar with the customs and culture of the Israelites. And so David asks him in verse 14, how? How is it that you were not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed. David cannot believe the gall of this guy. How in the world would he think so little of God as to strike down the Lord's anointed king? David is shocked by this. To be the Lord's anointed king meant that God had chosen you and thus only God had the right to remove his king. And to oppose the Lord's anointed is to oppose the Lord himself. And this is something David would never do, nor would Saul's own armor bearer when Saul first asked him to kill him back in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. David and the armor bearer and any self-respecting Israelite understood, like this Amalekite should have, the significance of being the Lord's anointed. So look at verse 15. Then David summoned one of his servants and said, come here and kill him. The servant struck him and he died. For David had said to the Amalekite, your blood is on your own head because your own mouth testified against you by saying, I killed the Lord's anointed. This was the exact opposite response the Amalekite was hoping to get from David. Instead of gratitude and a place in the new kingdom, this self-seeking Amalekite gets the death penalty. So what? What had this cunning Amalekite failed to factor into his elaborate story? He failed to account for the character of God's anointed king. He failed to account for the character of God's anointed king. You see, this anointed king does not reward evil. With this king, sin doesn't pay. You see, he thought he could have David as his king while remaining an Amalekite at heart. He thought he could seek David's kingdom without pursuing David's righteousness. What this Amalekite came to realize all too late was that it is terribly short-sighted to think that wickedness will prosper in the kingdom of God's anointed king. The lying and greedy self-promotion can get us what we want in the short term, In the end, God's anointed king will execute his justice. And there's no escaping that. And this is especially true in the kingdom of David's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a king who will one day perfectly judge all wickedness and unrighteousness. There is absolutely nothing that will get by him or go unnoticed and unaccounted for. So if you are here today and you have been hurt, you have been hurt by a self-seeking leader in Christ's church, I want you to know that God sees and God will judge. Though they and their ministry may seem to be prospering now, in the end, King Jesus will bring everything to light and justly judge all those who have used him and his kingdom for their own selfish ends. 
So I'm begging you, do not give up on Jesus. Do not give up on Jesus just because wicked people have used him to promote themselves. Instead, trust in the righteousness and the justice of God's anointed king. He will make all things right. Wickedness will not ultimately prosper in his kingdom. So what we have seen so far is that God's anointed king is just and righteous. So let's continue to explore the character of God's anointed king as we look at David's grief over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. So look at verse 17. David sang the following lament for Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the Judites be taught the song of the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. Instead of celebrating Saul's passing, David composes a, a lament for Saul and Jonathan, and he orders that all the people of Judah be taught it. What David is doing is he is refusing to hold on to bitterness, and instead he's choosing to see and to celebrate the good that was in Saul's life. So he begins his lament in verse 19 by saying, the splendor or the glory of Israel lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. Instead of gloating over Saul's passing, David is grieving. He's lamenting because of what was and now is not. Saul and Jonathan were mighty, but now they have fallen. And in verse 20, we see David longing for the impossible. Do not tell it in Gath. Don't announce it in the marketplaces of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice and the daughters of the uncircumcised will celebrate. You see, David can't stand the thought of Israel's enemies rejoicing at the news of Saul's and Jonathan's death. It pains him to his core to think of the joy on the faces of these Philistine women as they celebrate the victory that brought Saul and Jonathan to their graves. Well, David next turns his attention to the place where Saul and Jonathan died. He cries out, Mountains of Gilboa, let no dew or rain be on you or fields of offering, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer anointed with oil. David recognizes that something tragic had happened on the slopes of Mount Gilboa. And so in David's grief, it seemed appropriate to him that the dew and the rain acknowledge the tragedy that had taken place. And this is how grief functions, doesn't it? In our moments of extreme loss, we feel deeply that life will never, ever be the same again. And yet what is so frustrating is that all around us, the world keeps moving on as if nothing happened. The dew keeps appearing and the rain keeps falling and David can't stand the thought of that and wishes that all of nature would recognize the great loss that happened in the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. 
Well, David next turns his attention to Saul and Jonathan's prowess as warriors. Verse 22, Jonathan's bow never retreated. Saul's sword never returned unstained. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, Saul and Jonathan loved and delightful. They were not parted in life or in death. They were swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. In these verses, David is fondly remembering the skill and strength of Saul and Jonathan in battle. They were mighty warriors who brought who fought well against Israel's enemies, and they provided times of peace and prosperity for Israel. And so in verse 24, David says, Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with luxurious things, who decked your garments with gold ornaments. There was much good about Saul's reign, and David graciously chooses to focus on that. The women of Israel had benefited from Saul's reign, and so it was appropriate to grieve the good that was lost. And then in verses 25 through 26, David's lament becomes deeply personal as he grieves the loss of his beloved friend, Jonathan. How the mighty have fallen in the thick of battle. Jonathan, Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were such a friend to me. Your love for me was more wondrous than the love of women. Now, it's a gross misinterpretation to see anything sexual going on here. That would be to import contemporary assumptions into this ancient text. That's not the point. What David is doing is he is speaking out of his grief of the depth of devotion and friendship that he and Jonathan had shared throughout their lives together. David had never experienced a friendship like the one he shared with Jonathan. Jonathan was so full of love and faithfulness. Jonathan was so humble and gracious. Jonathan was so encouraging and supportive. The death of Jonathan was a profound loss for David, and he publicly grieves over the good that was lost. And so he concludes in verse 27 the same way he began. Oh, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. This is a beautiful and stirring lament. But I think what is even more beautiful is what this lament reveals about the character of God's anointed king. Instead of rejoicing at the fall of someone who had been so cruel to him, David chooses to focus on the good and grieve what had been lost. David refuses to let bitterness over how Saul had treated him get the best of him. He refused to give in to self-pity and just vent his pain and frustration at all the injustices that Saul had done against him. Instead, David chose gracious forgiveness instead of bitter hatred. He chose to focus on the good things about Saul's life and not focus on the many ugly things. And what this revealed about David's heart is that he had a profound, a deep trust and confidence in his God. 
You see, David was able to entrust all of his hurt, all of his pain to the Lord, and this freed him from the poison of bitterness and enabled him to humbly and graciously commend what was good in Saul. He didn't have to defend himself because God was his defender. He didn't have to justify himself because God is the one who had justified him. And so David here is wonderfully free to be able to grieve and mourn over the passing of someone who had caused him so much pain and so much trouble. And it's here, again, that we see David pointing us beyond himself to his greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the true Lord's anointed one who suffered unjustly at the hands of sinners. And yet, instead of growing bitter, what did Jesus do? He grieved over their hardness of heart. And he chose to let his love cover over a multitude of sins. Jesus laid down his very life for those who were his enemies. Jesus laid down his life for you and for me. Though we did not deserve it, Jesus gave himself for us. And now through faith in him, we too, by his spirit's help, can extend this gracious love and forgiveness to those who have wronged us. You see, it is only the cross of Jesus Christ that can empower this kind of radical love and forgiveness. And this is because in the death of Jesus Christ, we see the justice and the mercy of God come so beautifully together. You see, as Jesus hung dying on the cross, we see God's justice in punishing sin. God does not turn a blind eye to wickedness. Evil will not ultimately prosper in the kingdom of God. God will judge all the wrong and all the evil that has been done to you. And so, and so because of God's justice, you do not need to take your own revenge. Instead, you can leave room for God's wrath and trust that one day everything that is wrong will be made right. So this this is what a deep trust in the justice of God does for you. It frees you from harboring bitterness toward those who have wronged you and empowers you to move forward in gracious love and forgiveness. But it's not just a confidence in God's justice that does this for us. It's when that's combined with a confidence in God's mercy. None of us deserve God's mercy and forgiveness. All of us, without exception, deserve God's judgment and condemnation for our sin. And yet, and yet God sent his very own son to die in our place and for us our sins. And so as we contemplate our own helplessness and our sinful state before God, and yet his profound mercy in sending Jesus Christ, the pride that feeds our bitterness begins to crumble into dust and the fruit of gracious humility can grow in its place. As people who have been shown such lavish mercy by God, it then becomes our joy 
it becomes our privilege to extend that same mercy to those who have wronged us. In the opening chapter of 2 Samuel, we are given a glimpse into the character of God's anointed king. We see that he is righteous and just and wickedness will not prosper in his kingdom. But we also see that he is gracious and merciful as he grieves over the loss of someone who has done him so much harm. And in all of this, we are pointed beyond David to the Lord Jesus Christ, our true anointed king who is perfectly just and breathtakingly merciful to all those who turn from their sin and trust in him. So if you've not done that yet, I would invite you to give your life to King Jesus. Bring all of your hurts, your pain, your frustration to him, trusting that he is just, and bring all of your sin, your mess, your failures to him, trusting that he is oh so merciful and gracious. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the king we need. Jesus is the king our hearts long for. Let's pray.